Hi and welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. If you are listening to me now, that's because you took the trouble to answer our 2020 annual survey. So thank you very much. When I was looking for content for a bonus episode for those who took the survey, I suddenly remembered a very special interview I did roughly three years ago and which never saw the light of day. In August 2017, I was invited by Cyberreason to a conference they produced called Deep 2017. Initially, I was only supposed to give a talk in the event, which I did. It was about what's known as the Trojan Horse Affair, and it later aired as an episode of Malicious Life, which you can still find in our website. And then, a few days later, I got an email from one of the organizers. It read, Would you like to also interview Steve Wozniak on stage? Would I? I could hardly believe my luck. As someone who loves technology and loves building stuff, Woz, the legendary creator of Apple One and Apple Two computers, has been my inspiration, my idol, for who knows how many years. I mean, me and Woz on the same stage. Really? So, naturally, I replied to the email with... Yeah, yeah, I I think, I think I'll do it. You know, I'm already there and everything. Why not? That interview was probably one of the highlights of my career as an author and a podcaster. We discussed Wozniak's experience with viruses in the 1970s and 80s, his views on AI, autonomous vehicles, and formal education, and the many, many, many pranks he pulled off over the years. I knew from what I read that Woz is a great guy, but let me tell you, he is one of the funniest, smartest, and most creative people I've ever met. I wasn't allowed to air the interview on Malicious Life back then, but finally, three years later, I can. So here it is. I hope you enjoy my talk with Steven Wozniak. So, Ran Levy, who is going to be up here in a moment, is a gifted storyteller. In fact, he is Israel's most popular podcaster. And tomorrow, he is going to share a story of his own with you from stage. He's also somewhat of an expert on the history of cyber, um, of malware, and of viruses. And uh, he podcasts often about that. So, who better to have a fireside chat with a guest who really I couldn't even begin to introduce properly. I'll just tell you that I am humbled and thrilled and amazed to be able to welcome Steve Wozniak. Hi, good morning. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, yes, so I write extensively about the uh, past, uh, present, and future of cybersecurity, and that's part of what we're going to discuss today with Steve here. So, thank, first of all, thank you for being here. Uh, we're going to talk for about half an hour on stage, and then we'll give you the audience time for your uh, questions to uh, Mr. Wozniak. So, let's start with security. Now, back in the early 70s, when you were starting to work, in, work on your computers, That was roughly the time when the first viruses appear. We are talking about really obscure viruses such as the animal virus for Univac computers, 
or the Creeper and the Reaper, names that some of you might have heard uh, from the uh, ancient past, were you aware uh, of viruses and security in general when you started working on the first Apple computer? Answer is no. Um, I had been, I had, had experience in college in those days and never on networks and uh, with Hewlett Packard, you know, 3,000 computers and whatnot and many computers, but nothing that was really ex extensively networked. Never heard of viruses back then. Although you did have some run-ins with uh, the, I mean, uh, maybe the FBI, if I recall correctly, about uh, things that you did with the phone freaking back then, right? Oh, oh yeah, phone freaking in the early 70s. Um, didn't have any run-ins with the FBI. I am sure that the Berkeley campus cops were just knowing what I was doing, but I was, but one thing is, I, I paid for all my long distance calls. I only used a blue box to see how I could trick operators into connecting me to every country I could possibly get to. And, and you weren't even allowed to make calls to Russia back then. And one time I got somebody answering in Russian when I did country code seven or eight, I forget. And the Secret Service, did they ever uh, try to contact you? The Secret Service, uh, well, no, no, no. This is a much later time in my life, much later at post Apple, um, I got a printer in my town to make these pads for me, and every sheet, instead of being paper, it was four $2 bills perforated, so you just tear them off like stamps, and, and he got the supplies from a higher quality printer, and they met the specs of the U.S. government, so by law, they are U.S. tender, if you meet the specs of the U.S. government, and you I have pads of these, and I sell a sheet of four $2 bills everywhere I go, I sell sheets for $5, and they don't cost me eight bucks, and the Secret Service approved them three times, two of the times they saw the bills, one time they, um, they read me my Miranda rights, yeah. And I, of course, they wanted an ID and I had two choices, give them my driver's license or give them the fake ID I'd used on every airplane flight for five years. I had to give them the, the Secret Service, you'll never get another chance, had to give them the fake ID It said I was a laser safety officer and I have an eye patch in the picture. <laughs> so, so, so my run-ins is have fun in life and play games, and, but, but, but don't do anything bad. They were legal. The, the, the bills were legal tender. They met the specs of the U.S. government. So you didn't actually hear about the very first viruses, but I'm sure that when you were, uh, well, they already de developed the Apple II computer, mm -hmm. uh, and by the way... I well, before the Apple II, I knew yeah. of, of like, well, malware, that operating systems could be attacked. I never did it in my life, to tell you the truth, never once. But I knew that a friend of mine um, back in Beverly Hills High School, they had an HP computer or something, and he typed in a short little program, basic program, 10, dim A of 10. That's all. One and line. it crashed the whole computer. And the whole disk was unrecoverable. They'd go to a backup. And they, that was unrecoverable. They'd go to back. They got down to their last backup before they called Eula Packard and found the problem. They had to update from a level F of the operating system to level G. So you but, were aware but, of what... But that was, that was a tiny, tiny act could cause so much damage. Yeah, I was aware of that sort of thing. Um, no, I never set out once to uh, hack a computer and cause, any, cause a computer to fail, cause any problems for people, make any money off it. No, never once. But once you've heard about computer viruses, where did you uh, maybe, I mean, did the curiosity, your curiosity got the better of you and you my, tried something? My hearing about viruses was much, much later in time. And, um, but one time, yes, there was one time um, we had a, a, a system called HyperCard. It was kind of like a whole system you lived in before the internet, but it had links, hyperlinks to other cards. And it had a programming language. In that programming language, you could make things look very realistic. And I wrote a little program that 
supposedly did something, and it did do it. It did that thing for you, but it also installed itself. It, it did something funny like make every time you type G, you might get some other letter, some dumb thing like that in, in, the, in, in its own operating system. And it stored it, and, and it was stored on a, on a floppy disk that you read in. But then it, what it did was it was on an application program, but then the application program wrote it onto the system. And wherever you put that floppy disk, it wrote it back on any applications that got inserted in that machine. And, and I was so scared, I, uh, I threw away the source code. I got rid of, I mean, I was really scared because one time it could release, it could be just out of my control as to how far it goes. And another time I, I wrote one, wrote a program where, oh yes, you sent an email. Mac, the early Macs didn't really have an operating system like Unix. They didn't have an operating system at all, programmed to look like a computer and we kind of hacked one on. You could, you could send an email and it could have something that looked like it was just a, uh, gonna be a picture or a link, a link to a website. You click on it, but it would actually run a little app inside that knew the directory structure and what to name another app that was in there and install a bad program. I threw all the source code away. I mean, I just as soon as I finished these things, I just got scared each time. I never ever would let them hit the light of day. It's a shame because we would be very interested to see the source code probably. No, 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 because <laughs> I want to do things for fun. I want to play tricks, but I do not want to destroy ever in my life, ever want to cross that line of doing, doing damage, costing somebody money or... Um, or making money or anything, no. But the very first viruses for personal computers were for the Apple II computer, which you designed. And certainly the most, uh, the earliest viruses which became widespread. For example, there was a famous virus called the Elk Cloner back then, which displayed a kind of a silly limerick on screen. It was actually written by a 15-year-old kid. Were you in Apple, um, was Apple as a company aware of the growing phenomena of viruses for the Apple II? Well, I sure, was never, it I sure never heard of this, and I never heard the phrase virus. Bad programs that could do bad things. How could you have a virus? You don't have a connected computer. And uh, no, it's very, very, it'd be very difficult to understand. Our first computer, the operating system was in ROM. There was, <laughs> I mean, there weren't even floppy, there wasn't even a disk file system yet. So obviously from the start, no, I wasn't totally unaware that any Apple II uh, malware like that got around. So that in the beginning, it was non-issue. Yeah, in my, yeah my, in my classes that I taught of uh, um, fifth to ninth graders for eight years of my life in the public schools, taught classes using the computers and we were on Macintoshes. And every little program that came out that let you do fun things while you're on a network, oh, I can launch something and a monster will walk across somebody else's screen. You know, fun, fun type programs. I, I let the kids have the fun programs because it's more important that you enjoy learning than what you learn. And we had a rule in my class for eight years. If you can, once we learned how to set up your computer as servers being on a network, first was Ethernet wires, and then we got a little radio ones before Wi-Fi. And uh, I told Steve Jobs about it, and he said that's why Apple came out with the airport Wi-Fi system because it worked so well in our class. But these kids learn the networks and then learn how to protect your files and directories and folders. You learn how to protect the root and make them accessible only to certain friends and not others. I said, if, if you can hack into the computer and do something, um, mess things up on somebody else's computer, as long as they can undo it easily, as long as you can undo it easily, go ahead. And for eight years, they never once violated that rule. They, they'd hack them in like, like Bianca over there would be saying, Steve, my control panel's disappeared. Oh, my system folder disappeared. And I look around, there's little, little um, Daniel Lee's sitting there smiling, typing away, you know. <laughs> he was doing it. But it was all stuff that he, you could tell. Here's what you do. Here's where it is. Little Snowden, maybe. And you, no. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of experiences where the kids tried to mess up each other's computer. The beginner classes would try to mess up the computers of the advanced class. And, and I, I instructed them a little bit on technique, you know. <laughs> write, a, write, a, write a program in HyperCard that looks just like a real program, saying it's a network enhancer, it'll enhance your speed, it'll enhance your storage. But meanwhile, at one point, it looks exactly like the Macintosh system asking for password and all and get the advanced classes passwords and and then I, then I taught him how to change a password on your computer and then examine this one area of memory see if any one byte changed when you change one letter yeah and it turns out those early macintoshes didn't have encryption on passwords they just had a, a cipher an a might become a p and a b might become an l i mean it was it, once you crack the cipher <laughs> <laughs> the kids got in trouble a few times at school, but not doing anything, not doing anything destructive ever. I, I really uh, caution the kids really hard on that. You do it for fun only. That actually ties in to a question that I have regarding the future of education. You said once, I think it was in Reddit, Reddit AMA, that you see that the you consider the future of uh, education to be kids working with smart computers as kind of private teachers. But that probably means less place for human teachers in the classroom. Is there a place for a human in, in the future okay. classroom? Well, the context was that um, I originally thought computers coming into classrooms would change things so drastically kids would walk out smarter. They'd use 100% of their neurons instead of 10%, and that didn't happen. So computers alone didn't make the difference. You still need human guidance is what I came, the conclusion I came up with. A teacher that you like and that understands you, knows you, knows your family, cares about you, has feelings. We don't have that in a computer. We, sure, pull out your phone, you're on it all day long. It's like it's your best friend. You can ask it questions and get answers now. But we want a real kind of human appearance and artificial intelligence is not there. And I, I don't like to predict things based upon today's environment because a million people smarter than me in the education field could predict much better, you know, goal-oriented education and classes and self and sharing students and no teachers and a lot of different ideas, but anybody could propose that. So I like to propose something that doesn't exist. Artificial intelligence, a computer that cares about you as a feeling, it's a better friend than any human. It knows everything about your life and when to flip for jokes and it watches your facial expression and understands you. Now that might be somebody, I will trust you to take me where I want to go and eventually, maybe every student could go in different directions. One could be a writer, one could be interested in history, one in mathematics, one in chemistry. They could just go and excel. You're not held back by normal school, holds you back to these pages on Monday and these pages on Tuesday. Then every student could excel, go as far as they want, as fast as they want, because I love mathematics. And when I was in high school, we'd get assigned, do all the odd problems from one to 37. Heck, I would do every single problem in the book all the way to 50, every single one, because I loved it. So if you love something, and you're, if you're not, not really held back so much, um, you'll go in the things, you, you'll excel in the things that you want to do. And, uh, and you still need some, but I think you need some human guidance. Uh, a young person feels dependent on other humans. So, this, so if a machine is like a human, good enough. Um, yeah, is there room for some human in the class? Obviously to overlook the equipment and just help with general um, personal questions, maybe they don't even have to do with the education subjects, but no one, no one teacher, no one teacher could teach you all the, the, the mathematics, you know, from, from 10 years old all the way up to, you know, the end of, to, to graduate in college, a computer could have the whole breadth of every subject and no teacher really could. So there's things, there are limits with, um, um, a teacher can't really come in and help with, you know, calculus if, if, if the teacher's never been near mathematics. See, so 
this, this really lets students uh, go, it's really for the students. Would it be effective? Would we turn out people that are smarter? Who knows? I don't know. But, that's but, it's, but, but I like to pick something that doesn't exist because then I'm saying, that's what I always did with my, my engineering. Still pick something that something. Doesn't, ex doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and you can't really be uh, challenged on it. You just go do it. And that actually uh, interesting because 10 years ago, in ancient times, about in 2007, I read an interview of yours where you said that you don't see artificial intelligence copying what people can do, and uh, you don't even imagine computer making you a cup of coffee in the future. If and that's what you read, it was probably some writer trying to make it a little bit exaggerated and sensational. It was Macworld, so you can but, only... But I can... I can <laughs> yes, but if it was condensed to that, I mean, could a computer make a cup of coffee? Ever. What would it take you to come into my house and make a cup of coffee? You'd have to knock on the door, you'd have to get answered, you'd have to stumble over, walk over things and look around and spot a kitchen. Wait a minute, how do you know what a kitchen is? You aren't programmed with a kitchen, you've seen kitchens your whole life. Well, theoretically, this robot would have to grow up with a life where it's seen kitchens and seen coffee makers and, and in theory, it'd have to open up drawers and try to figure out how a coffee maker works. That's what a human would do. Except this computer might have an advantage today because the internet the computer would just look at a certain coffee machine in two seconds, identify what it is and every little aspect of how it works and then look for the pieces. So maybe it would have an advantage. I, I, I don't say that that'll never happen, but I, I always used to say it'll happen if a 15-year-old decides that's his goal in life. That's his passion. Someday he's going to pay attention to every little aspect of computer science and mechanics and everything it takes to, uh, to get that done. Um, I, I think of a little machine more useful, maybe less expensive, it just sits outside in the driveway all night long, washes my car one square centimeter at a time. By morning, it's done, and I don't care. I'd pay for that, just like a Roomba. A Roomba for your car. So, so <laughs> yes, but the type, of thinking, the type of thinking that humans do comes from largely living a life, and we haven't really talked about robots and computers growing up that way. We try to get a little closer to learning. Okay, we have deep learning and, da, 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 and try everything and neural networks and figure things out. So now a computer can play Go better than a human or chess better than a human. Actually, but DeepMind played Breakout. It was mm -hmm. two years back. Google uh, demoed it that Perfect. you designed yeah. <laughs> back for the Atari computers. Yes. So uh, don't, don't you think that DeepMind... Uh, no, is... DeepMind did not say, hmm, what's a good project to do today? I think I'll teach myself how to play breakout. No, <laughs> no, the, no computer, no artificial intelligence has talked about saying, well, what should I do? Theoretically, maybe when we get to the singularity, you can't go beyond it. That's when things collide, computer intelligence and the brain, and maybe it starts to be able to teach itself things or come up with ideas and consciousness, but it would take so many. I'm not, I'm not afraid of the uh, computer apocalypse at all, at all. I mean, decades and decades and decades before we have machines that really start to have the breadth of human thinking and being able to spot unusual situations and figure out what they might be from its past. We're decades from that, and then we're still hundreds of years from where they could change all the infrastructure of the world, from digging ores to transporting them to mining. It's computers talking to computers, talking to electric cars, talking to automatic cars and controlling everything in the world. No, it's, it's absurd to be afraid of it. Uh, we're, we're, you know, one thing is Isaac Asimov had a law, no, no robot can harm a human being. I have Waz's law, no human can harm a thinking robot. Once we have robots that think and feel, that have consciousness, uh, we should be their friends forever. We should be their partners because if they ever do grow up and grow up and get more superior and more superior and do all the thinking for us, well, we want them to take care of us. 
just like the family dog. <laughs> and everything we build in technology is to take care of us and do things for us so we don't have to do them. And that is like a family dog, just has everything taken. I got my home, I got my food, I got my friends, I got my fun. So I started feeding my dog filet steaks because I'm gonna do unto others the way I wanna be treated. <laughs> the difference is the dog thinks that you're a god and the cat thinks that they're the god since you're the one feeding them. So well, I have to, think, I have to think my dog is a god too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay in, in the realm of education. Um, you often, uh, you, you said once in an interview that uh, you think that um, high-tech companies make a mistake when they overlook the tinker types of people or for the PhDs, the people who uh, get uh, more focused on formal education. Yeah, and uh, yet you yourself uh, came back to finish your formal education when it was in the 80s, uh, did you think that there was something you were missing on in uh, formal education that you didn't have as a thinker? Formal education kind of means academic education. You get educated everywhere you walk and you try things on your own. All the things that I was just brilliant at, well, no, I was also good at formal education, <laughs> getting all the math awards in my schools and 800s and all the math and science SATs. But all the things that were important, I learned on my own. Electronics, ham radio, computers, how, do you, how they're built, just on paper. I couldn't afford a part. I could never get near a computer, but I just loved it so much. Every weekend, I spent my time trying to design computers with fewer parts than I'd ever done before. That wasn't in school. That's not formal education. And building things. I built little projects, dinky little things, even leading up in the five years leading up to Apple, one after another after another, great things. The first hotel movie system. A guy from Hollywood wanted to do it, and I got to design it. And uh, time codes for te television systems and home pinball games and games at Atari. Designed Breakout for Atari. I was just doing these for fun. I would usually charge five cents. That was my normal fee. I'll do an engineering job for you for five cents because I loved it so much. Like in college, I, I love typing, so I would type term papers for people from midnight till 6.30 in the morning, and I would charge them five cents because I loved typing. I don't know. How it's much just, do you I charge was, today for uh, that but kind the of important, <laughs> What? How much do you charge today? Because it's very useful for a lot of people. I, I still like to charge five cents now and then. I tutored, I tutored a lot of statistics in, um, in Berkeley, and, and uh, five cents was my going fee. But still, looking at formal education, sometimes it, give you, it gives you a background in subject, subject that maybe as a thinker you would not have been inclined naturally to, to go to. For yeah. example, well, if someone well, is not mathematically inclined, a company, you do a company shouldn't ignore academic PhDs over tinkers. You need many things going on in a company. Sometimes the PhDs are tinkers too. But somebody who just has only the academic credentials, man, that's probably not the key to the new products of the company. You gotta, if, you, if you're, for example, I think in terms of startups more than companies, and you can have a startup within a company, but the startup needs some business sense to make money and some marketing sense to know what's valuable. The best marketing sense is if it's for yourself. You always want the best, you know. You ask Elon Musk, ask Steve Jobs, ask me. And you, you need engineering. You should have engineering from, from, from the start and ideas of, what you're going to build, what you can build, and but clever engineering. You need something to think of doing things that haven't been done before. Somebody who's been building has learned how to take building materials and complete projects, even if at first they were not their own projects, but they should learn. At some point, they learn to, oh my gosh, here's my idea. I know how to put some pieces together that will go there. And all the great things I ever did for Apple, 
every one of them, I had never done that technology before in studying, in engineering, in jobs or anything, um, but I had the motivation. Floppy disk is a good example. We would get into the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada, after our first year with the Apple II computer, and only three marketing people would go, and I wouldn't go. So I raised my hand in a staff meeting, and I said, what if we have a floppy disk? That means instead of loading a cassette tape in for a program to do your checkbook, you could say, run checkbook, and it would run it. And, and our, Mike Markle said, yes, we could, if we have a floppy disk, we'll show it. The show was in two weeks. I've never touched disk hardware or software in my life. I knew nothing about it. I just knew that hard disks stored all this data in big companies and did financial reports and, and inventory levels and sales figures and salary. I wouldn't know how you make this sort of thing. I sat down and started studying the timing that goes into a disk and it's like a tape drive and I sat there and designed the cleverest little eight $1 chip thing. Thought it was no good, but I did it and I got to go to Las Vegas. And I brought a high school programmer along with me, Randy Wigginton, taught him how to play craps. And he won 35 bucks. <laughs> that was the big win. I taught Steve Jobs how to play craps on that trip too. But no, but, um, but um, it was to get to Las Vegas motivated me and I had a really incredible A-plus project. Felt so dearly about it, I also, rather than have a company lay out the PC board, I came in night after night after night taping up my own PC board. And when I got done, I realized I had eight whole feed-through holes, it's called, in the PC board that connect the top layer to the bottom layer. And I sat there and looked at it. I said, oh my gosh, if I designed it different, I could have fewer holes. So I whipped it all apart, redesigned it with the shift register going right to left instead of left to right, and did it back, and I wound up with only five holes. I saved three holes. You do that kind of perfection when you care about something. So maybe if, you understand, if I understand correctly what you're saying, for companies, there's the sweet spot maybe of having different personalities and different roles in the companies, perhaps, if I understand you correctly. Yes, and there's also a problem. How do you give a clever engineer that's more of an inventor than an engineer? A tinker, it's like an inventor. Get an idea, run the lab, I want to try to hook it together myself. Let them have a lot of autonomy working alone and let them uh, choose their, their path and what, the, what they're going to work on. But a lot of, most of the projects in a company are just have to be well-defined in 40 pages of paper by everybody before any money gets allocated to let them work on a project. And that isn't where the real great unexpected new stuff comes from. That just keeps the money wheel going. And you have to do both. So you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta have people that are good at designing what, what they're instructed to design, but you should always have a few of these little bright people to at least advise the CEOs to what they think is coming next. And, and tinkers another, are the best, tinkers are the best, because they've written programs or they've built hardware and they completed projects. Uh, and still staying in the anecdotes of education, when you were in, uh, completing your education in Berkeley, you called yourself Rocky Raccoon? Oh, yes. I went back to, um, after an airplane crash, I, I had came out of amnesia five weeks later, and I called up Steve Jobs and said, Macintosh team's in great shape. Burl Smith, who never went to college a day in his life, learned the techniques I use for designing with the fewest parts, and he's as good as I am, and I'm going to go back to college for my last chance, to go back to college for the last year and get my degree. I never dropped out of college. I just took a year off to earn money, and my career went up so fast, I never got a chance to finish that year of college that I'd earned the money for, so as not to burden my parents. So the next year I went back, and my name was famous, so I used a fake name, and my Berkeley diploma says Rocky Raccoon Clark. <laughs> I was Rocky Clark. Yes. <laughs> with, with everything productive I have said my whole life, you got to mix in some fun. 
Happiness is how I'm going to judge my life when I'm done, not accomplishments. Uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, you said in the past that you see the future of uh, vehicles being autonomous and it might be even be illegal one day for uh, humans to drive a car. Yet you also stated uh, once before that when uh, engineers working, are working on new technologies, they usually don't have time and the bandwidth to think about, to can take into account considerations such as security when developing a new technology. How can we make sure that autonomous vehicles who are uh, entering, I mean, a connected world right at the, at the go are well secured? Maybe the government should step in and regulate the development of autonomous vehicles. Well, how, could, how can we? I'll ask you. <laughs> who knows? Um, I would think that the importance of that is so obvious to everyone, autonomous vehicles. Yikes, if, what if hackers can penetrate them? And they're based on operating systems, you know, like, like Linux. Uh, Tesla is based on Linux. And oh my gosh, and they're connected, they're connected to the internet and to other vehicles. Um, it's a danger, but we always think about security last. And we build a system. I remember being in college and discovering that the United States phone system, if you put tones, beep, 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 the right tones into a phone, They never thought anybody would be able to build devices that would do that. You could dial free calls anywhere in the world. Who would have thought a network, the phone system would have been designed with a flaw like that? So security is always an afterthought. First, we want to make our technology do as much as it can. A self-driving car actually drive itself without a wheel. I don't believe that totally yet. It's ever going to happen. No, without a wheel? <laughs> I've, been scared. I've been scared back from that, from the, how poorly the Tesla handles any unusual situation. You had a Tesla, right? What's your experience with uh, the Tesla? The Tesla, they claimed it would drive across the country in 2016, and it didn't come. And then they fired their sensor company. Their sensors could never possibly drive across the country, their camera and, and looking for obstacles. So they put out a new sensor system with 16, 16 detectors around it and eight cameras. And that one's supposedly going to drive across the country in 2017. It's a joke. Tesla's probably in last place for self-driving cars out of all the manufacturers. They've got, like, for example, Chevrolet with the Chevrolet Bolt, $35,000, 200-plus mile range, um, chargers that you can take road trips in it. That Bolt has been driving 50 self-driving cars in San Francisco for a year. They've just uh, made 130 more of them for some cities. I saw a video once. It's going along at night. It stops at stop signs. It waits for traffic. It goes to stop signs in cars and handles things. A raccoon walked across in front of the Chevy Bolt at night, and the Chevy Bolt slowed down for the raccoon. I mean, this is, that's so much further than a Tesla. Just All Tesla did, I had a car in 2004 that had lane keep assist, Mercedes. If you sort of started over the lane, it would beep and nudge you back just barely. It wouldn't steer. Tesla turned on the steering and called it beta. This beta idea that came from computers just gets a, says, we're, it's, we're not, we don't have to make it safe. You're still responsible. So, and, and that's all it does. And that's all it does. It doesn't stop for, it's for a beta. stop signs or traffic lights or anything. And this whole, what you really need for a full self-driving car, no steering wheel. That, uh, I, I, I'm just scared that it'll never, that. never, yeah, never happen. I mean, they might make level four cars that in the worst situation, stop, totally stop. There's something, some construct, road construction, they can't read the signs, they don't know what it means. A human, every human being would figure it out just by looking, would figure out what I really have to do to get around this. And those level four will stop. Level five cars are the ones that will always continue. But um, right now, we've, uh, it's, 
Audi. Audi has level three cars for sale and, and level four cars they're demonstrating. So, and Tesla's way back at level two. What's your and ne I've next never car? And I've never heard of a self-driving Tesla, huh? What's your next car? I don't know what my next car is, but I don't want to go to a gas station ever again in my life. I've got two electric cars. Every day I walk into the garage and I choose to drive the Chevy Bolt instead of the Tesla. Um, it's just an easier, quick, get up and go car, more comfortable, more space, better sound system, air conditioner that works. Um, for <laughs> road trips, road trips, test, what's more important than electric car? Charging. Is, charging is more important. You got it. Um, Tesla has figured out, they built the first six superchargers. Why? They were between Elon Musk's home in LA and the factory up in Fremont, California. The first six, they were four, it was what he realized he would need and they expanded their network so thoroughly he can drive anywhere in the country. And when I talked to the Chevy Bolt engineers before the Chevy Bolt was out, I said, did you use the Tesla superchargers? Did you link with Tesla, make a deal? No, 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 we just build a car. We leave charging to other people. Oh my God, you, when you buy an electric car, you buy a car, it's sort of self-driving. You want a modern car, you want no sacrifice. You want to be able to say, I can go anywhere I want, when I want to. And with the Chevy Bolt, it uses fast enough chargers to take long road trips, but they're only in the cities because they were built for smaller battery cars that can't go out of the city. So now the Chevy Bolt can go out of the city, but on the long stretches of roads out towards you know Kansas, I'm sorry, you can't make it. You have to stop a couple of times and charge overnight with a slow level two charger. It's the level three chargers of the superchargers. No, Tesla owns that world. Not only that, in the early Tesla days, I'd have to plan a trip. As the network expanded, my wife and I always tried to go one beyond the Tesla superchargers because it's an adventure to figure your way out of a mess. How are we going to do that? <laughs> Believe me, we had, we had more than one close call. Your wife trusts you. That's nice because my wife no, no, never no, allowed me no, to. No, my wife's like that. We're lucky. <laughs> We're both like that. So, but as, as, as the network... That's the secret for happy marriages, probably. <laughs> yes, and we have, we have gone extremely uh, long distances and done amazing things um, just in Tesla and electric car. But um, the thing is, I really wanted to, to be able to, to go anywhere, not worry about it. But what I would do is plan a trip. Here's the highways we'll be on. Then I'd look at another map on a different website that showed where super superchargers were for Teslas. And then I'd type in their addresses into a third program, a navigation program. Type in the addresses and make spreadsheets of all the different, um, all the different distances. So I know if you're charged up to 250 miles, you can probably make this one that's 192. I'd know which ones, what a hassle. But now Tesla does it all for you. I type in, we're gonna go to Kansas. We're gonna go to the Oriad Hotel in Lawrence, Kansas. And Tesla figures out not only the route, but every supercharger stop on the way that's right for you. It watches your speed. It tells you if you have to slow down or if you have to go to a sooner supercharger. I mean, I really like that. Although it did teach me one thing with electric cars, drive the speed limit. <laughs> you can drive 90 miles an hour and get to Las Vegas an hour faster, but you'll have to charge for an extra hour. <laughs> it doesn't pay. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, uh, yeah. So, um, no, but uh, I think Tesla, Europe, all over Europe, they got those superchargers. That's really going to be the, the key that puts them ahead of everyone. BMW announced they're going to put a billion dollars into fast chargers for their type of cars. Um, I, I, we need one world standard for a charger type, too. Don't want to wind up with multiples. You want it to be one standard like Wi-Fi. The same charger works everywhere, and they're not quite there yet. But BMW put a billion in, and, and other companies said they were going to put a billion into an electric car factory, and Elon Musk made a very appropriate comment. They lift out a zero.